Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with the biggest news story of the week, which is that Britain claims it knows the identities of the Russian agents said to be responsible for the Salisbury attack in March with what we're told was a nerve agent called Novichok. This is in the New York Times. UK charges two men in Novichok poisoning, saying they're Russian agents. The two assassins sent to southwest England in March to poison a Russian former spy were active officers in Russia's military intelligence, Prime Minister Theresa May of Britain said on Wednesday, after prosecutors accused the men of attempted murder, the first criminal charges in a case that has driven a deep wedge between Russia and the West. Investigators released a cache of evidence in the case, including security camera images that captured the progress of two husky men from an aeroflot flight to the scene of the crime near the victim's home and from there back to Moscow. They also released photographs of the delicate perfume bottle that was used to carry a weapons-grade nerve agent known as Novichok to the quiet English cathedral city of Salisbury. British counter-terrorism police said at a news conference they poured through thousands of hours of security camera footage, cross-referenced the results of passport data, and on May the 2nd identified a shabby hotel in East London where the men had stayed. Finally, in a needle and haystack moment, two swabs taken from the suspect's hotel were found to contain traces of the nerve agent. Well, two questions there. First of all, where did they get the passport data? And also, if the Novichok was in the hotel of these two Russian agents, then why did it not affect them? The article goes on. Addressing Parliament a short time later, Mrs May said that parallel to the police investigation, British intelligence agencies had conducted their own inquiry and concluded that the two men were officers of the Russian Military Intelligence Service, also known as the GRU. Well, intelligence says is like saying government says. Intelligence investigations find whatever it suits the authorities for them to find doesn't mean they're telling the truth, it just means that they say they found this, they say they found that. Just like with the invasion of Iraq, we were told that there was intelligence to suggest that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Well, we now know they weren't there. So, intelligence says is meaningless, really. The article goes on. She said the nerve agent attacks were of a piece with a long string of Russian operations. In other words, connected to a long string of Russian operations spearheaded by the GRU, including the seizure of Crimea, incursions into eastern Ukraine, the downing of a civilian airliner in Ukrainian airspace. Well, there's a lot of questions to ask about that as well. And an attempted coup in Montenegro. The allegation of specific GRU involvement in the use of the nerve agent adds to the heightened tensions between Moscow and the West, which has led to mutual expulsions of hundreds of diplomats and embassy employees and to sanctions against Russia. The GRU, now known as the main director of the General Staff, serves as an undercover strike force for the Kremlin in conflicts around the world. Some of its officers were charged in July by United States prosecutors with hacking Democrats' computer systems during the 2016 presidential campaign. Without any evidence presented that that was the case, the background and the true mentality of Hillary Clinton might have had more to do with Donald Trump getting elected than any so-called hacking into an election. Just just maybe, I get the feeling that might have had something to do with it. The article goes on. The British authorities that issued domestic and European arrest warrants for the two men identified as Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Barsharov and released photographs of them. The men travelled on valid Russian passports on those names, the police said, adding that they believed the names were aliases. 
We do understand they have travelled extensively in the past under these aliases, Neil Bassett, Britain's top counter-terrorism police official said. Well, where? They've travelled a lot, well so have a lot of people. What does that mean? Article goes on. The information released on Wednesday made clear that investigators had known of the men's assumed names, their movements and the contamination of their hotel room for months without saying so publicly. Why? On Wednesday they appealed for the public's help to fill in the gaps about what the men had done and when. The names as well as the photos published in the media mean nothing to us. Maria Zakharova, a spokesman for the Russian Foreign Ministry, told journalists on Wednesday. We once again urge the UK to switch from public accusations and informational manipulations to practical interaction between law enforcement agencies. The Crime Prosecution Service charged the men with the attempted murder of the Russian former intelligence officer Sergei Skripal, of Yulia Skripal, his daughter, and of a police officer, Detective Sergeant Nick Bailey, who was sick and while investigating the case. The men were also charged with conspiracy to murder Mr. Skripal, use and possession of the nerve agent and causing grievous bodily harm. The charges do not address the poisoning of two Britons, Dawn Sturgis who died in Charlie Rowley, the investigators believe the events are linked. Both Ms. Sturgis and Mr. Rowley felt ill months after the attack on the Skripal's when they found the perfume bottle the investigators believe was used to transport the nerve agent. I'll have something to say about this perfume bottle with the next article. The same two men are now the prime suspects in the case of Dawn Sturgis and Charlie Rowley, Mrs. May said, adding that the same poison was used in both cases and that the two were victims of the reckless disposal of this agent. Prosecutors did not request the extradition of the men from Russia, which does not send its nationals abroad for prosecution. Mr. Basu said that while he hoped for arrest, it's looking very, very unlikely that we're going to get to that point. The article goes on. The images released by the police show how easily the attack could have escaped detection. The suspects look perfectly ordinary, strolling in wintry weather in jeans and parkas. The police released pictures of a counterfeit bottle for a perfume, Nina Rich's Premier Jean, and a pearlescent pink box that contained it, a container so innocuous that Mr. Bassett called it the perfect delivery method. Mrs. May said the manner in which the bottle was modified leaves no doubt. It was a cover for smuggling a weapon into the country. All five victims were poisoned with Novichok, a class of nerve agents developed by Soviet and Russian scientists, according to British government scientists and the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the international agency that monitors compliance with the Global Treaty on Chemical Weapons. Britain won backing from its Western allies for the conclusion that Moscow is behind the attack, touching off the latest in a series of diplomatic breaches between the Kremlin and the West. After the attack on the group housing in Salisbury, Cathedral City, southwest of London, Western nations imposed new economic sanctions and expelled 150 Russian diplomats and other officials, many of them believed to be intelligence agents. Russia responded by ejecting a similar number of officials from those countries. Mr. Basu said the suspects were in Britain only briefly, flying in from Moscow on March the 2nd, staying for two nights at the City Stay Hotel on Bow Road in East London, and flying back to Moscow on March 4th. The dusty, low-cost hotel with a patch of artificial grass in front is next to a train station. After tracing the men's movements to the hotel and determining which room they stayed in, Mr. Basu said investigators examined the room on May 4th and two swabs showed contamination of Novichok at levels below that which would cause concern for public health. Well, we were told that even in minimal amounts, Novichok is hazardous, even deadly. That's what goes on. People who live and work in the area said they were dismayed not to have heard of the contamination in here. Yeah, they might, they might just be. Yeah, they might just be. It's a bit shocking that they waited until now, but I guess there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that I'm not aware of, said Andrea Payne, 24, a student who lives near the hotel. Yeah, isn't there just? The men took a train to Salisbury on March 3rd, Mr. Basu said, adding that the trip was for reconnaissance of the Salisbury area. He said they'd return the next day to carry out the poisoning. The police said closed-circuit television recording showed the men near but not at Mr. Scrupal's house. 
Mr. Skripal is believed to have been the primary target of the attack. He is apparently the latest in a long string of people at odds with President Vladimir Putin's government, who have been the victims of assassinations or attempted assassinations in Russia and abroad, says the official story. Well, at this time, when the West is demonising Russia at every turn and is angling for a conflict with Russia, long planned, why would Putin, who seems to be something of a peacemaker compared to the West, in all this, Putin and Assad have done a good job of holding back Islamic State, which is one of the reasons the West has a problem with him. And Putin knows, in fact, he said that basically the West are angling for a conflict. Why at this time of all that, and given that background, would Putin decide to assassinate a Russian agent, or former Russian agent even, when he knows that will give the West the ammo, almost literally, that they need to demonise him in the minds of the public and when he knows that would give the West the ammo they need to demonise him in the public mind to the point where that would justify in the public mind the conflict with Russia that they, the West, are seeking. The article goes on. Alexander Litvinenko, a former Russian spy who had become a vocal critic of Mr. Putin, was fatally poisoned in London with a radioactive element, polonium-210, an attack that British investigation said the Russian president probably approved. Probably. Russia imprisoned Mr. Skripal in 2004 for selling secrets to Britain and released him in 2010 as part of a spy swap with Western countries. He settled in Salisbury but quietly continued working in intelligence, offering insights into Russian espionage practices. The Skripal's fell seriously ill on March the 4th with what was diagnosed within days as nerve agent poisoning, leading to a lockdown of parts of Salisbury and terrifying residents as hundreds of workers in hazardous materials suits searched for contamination. Well, I've seen photos, and many other people have as well, of workers surveying the area in suits, but there's firemen there without any protective clothing on, and they're fine, it would seem. Tell him anything, I'll believe anything. The article goes on. Doctors did not expect him to survive, but the Skripals who were found unresponsive in a Salisbury Park were released from a hospital after weeks of treatment. Investigators concluded the poison had been applied to the front door of Mr. Skripal's house in Salisbury. His daughter, Yulia, who was visiting from Russia, may have been an unintended victim. A police officer who took part in the initial investigation was sickened by the same substance but has recovered. On June 30th, two Britons were poisoned with what investigators said was the same nerve agent, Miss Sturgis, who lived in Salisbury, and her boyfriend, Mr. Rowley, who lived nearby in Amesbury. Miss Sturgis died eight days later, turning the investigation into a murder case. Well, first of all, we were told that this perfume bottle was recklessly discarded, just thrown just away. Now we're told that the perfume bottle was calculatedly thrown away, so then it might infect other people or another person. I mean, which one is it? And this is a deadly nerve agent, but it only kills some people. Even in the smallest amounts, it's hazardous, even deadly, but it only kills some people. I mean, so many questions in this story. The article goes on. Once again, Salisbury was appended by a search for more contamination, prompting a new wave of fear among residents who complained that officials' assurances of... 
The article goes on. Once again, Salisbury was appended by a search for more contamination, prompting a new wave of fear among residents who complained that officials' assurances of relative safety had been meaningless. Mr Rowley said he and Miss Sturgis had become sick after handling the perfume bottle which he had found. The authorities have said the bottle contained the toxin and had apparently been discarded by the personal persons who had carried out the attack on the screw pass. Well, that's the official story in the New York Times there. As always, when authorities saying anything, it needs to be questioned. Is there a bottle that was found that contains Novichok or some other nerve agent or toxin? Very possibly. Where did it come from? There's different ways to look at this. Either this bottle doesn't exist, we've not seen it, or it does exist. It was in the possession of these two Russians who were being blamed for the attack but it contains no toxin or nerve agent, or it was not in the possession of these Russians, and it's just claimed that it was. There's so many questions still unanswered. And on that point, here's an article from RT. Yes, it's RT, Russia Today, so naturally Russia Today takes a Russian stance, but it, but it makes points and asks questions the mainstream media won't ask, not just in relation to Russia, but in relation to the geopolitical agenda of the West, Syria, and other subjects as well, the mainstream media won't. So this is the article. Salisbury plot thickens, questions without answers multiply. Britain has shown images of the people allegedly responsible for the Skripal chemical weapons saga, claiming they were Russian military spies. As the case moves forward, questions remain unanswered about the British narrative. Right from the start, the poisoning attack on Sergei Skripal, a retired double agent in Salisbury, was shaped by the British establishment as a barbaric and reckless attack by the Russian government on a perceived traitor under protection of the British crown. The assertion was a political one, not based on actual evidence. Russia's request for access to the investigation, a reasonable request considering two of the victims of Russian citizenship, was stonewalled in any doubts about the narrative dismissed as mere obfuscation. The latest development on Wednesday was along the same lines. While the investigators themselves were careful to stress that there was no evidence linking the two alleged perpetrators with the Russian government, Prime Minister Theresa May didn't hesitate to bump up a cabinet's level of certainty in the Kremlin's guilt from highly likely to certainly based on classified intelligence. The public, of course, is not allowed to test the validity of this intelligence and has to trust May that the two men were indeed officers of the Russian intelligence service, GRU's acting on an order from the highest echelons of the government as she claims. After all, it's been here for 15 years since the public was told to trust our government on Saddam's WMDs. So who would doubt the intelligence? Here are some of the lingering questions which put a dent in the prevailing British narrative of the case. Poor choice of weapon for assassination. The weapons-grade nerve agent Novichok used to poison Skripal for the people in Britain seems to be a remarkably poor tool for the job. It claimed one life, not that of its presumably intended target, and was swiftly identified by the British authorities who didn't wait long to cry Russia did it based on its nature. Well, we're told that it claimed one life. Certainly, one person has died because of whatever cause. And it says, the GRU sent agents armed with a faulty weapon that would inevitably be considered Russian after a Russian defector. Seems plausible. Fake perfume bottle. So the highly trained Russian assassins planted their Novichok gel or whatever from the fake Nina Ritchie bottle to the handle of the Skripal's house door. Confirmed that their mark contacted the poison and now need to quickly flee the country. What do they do with the murder weapon? Do they throw it into the Avon? What do they do with the murder weapon? Do they throw it into the Avon River, which is right there in Salisbury? 
or use some other crafty way to get rid of the incriminating evidence for good. No, they just toss it somewhere, only to be found two months later by a struggling couple living in Amesbury, one of whom, Dawn Sturgis, sadly died from the poison. Well, she died. It seems the executors of the operation were as sloppy as its planners were thick. It is interesting that there is nowhere to tell whether the poison in the fake proofing bottle came from the same sample as the one that was used against the scoop house. If it was an obvious shot that was used against the scoop house. It's the same chemical, for sure, as confirmed by the APCW, but a number of factors do not make it possible to draw conclusions as to whether the samples are from the same synthesis batch the chemical weapons watchdog reported. So are the investigators certain that the bottle is actually the weapon as common sense suggests? We should also remember that close to Salisbury, close to Salisbury, where the incident with the screw house happened, there's a science park, Porton Down, which is a chemical facility and part of it. The article goes on. Russian nationals false personas. The British police used CCTV footage to thoroughly track down the movements of the suspects in Britain. They arrived from Moscow by plane under what is presumed to be false identities, stayed in the hotel room where they somehow left traces of Novichok, went twice to Salisbury, one for reconnaissance and one for the actual hit, and then flew back to Moscow. It doesn't seem like the Russian assassins bothered about covering their tracks. However, if the identities were fake, what makes them Russian nationals, let alone GRU agents? Why not Ukrainians or some other ethnically close nationals, or just some white guys who can deliver a good menacing Russian accent? And if British intelligence did positively identify them, names and ranks included, why this call for the public to tell the police who these guys are? Oh, of course, to protect sources and methods, the usual mantra of the intelligence community when asked to produce evidence and assessments on Russia's bad deeds. Motive, anyone? Motive is often the tricky part of a criminal investigation. People do the strangest things for all the wrong reasons, but the GRU was an organisation which is supposed to act rationally, especially on orders from the Russian government. So what was the goal of this bizarre operation? May's explanation is that Russia wanted to send a signal to Russians living in the West to not mess with Moscow. Or something like that. The message is presumably, we can take any amount of damage to our reputation to get a random double agent who no longer poses any threat to our nation. It seems like the geopolitical equivalent of the Tide Pod Challenge. The British Prime Minister would not be baited on Wednesday into naming President Vladimir Putin as personally responsible for ordering the Group House death. This was published on the 5th of September. But let's not be coy about it. Putin, who indeed has a lot of authority in Russia, is perceived by many in the West as a dictatorial, all-controlling figure. So it's natural that the public is not offered any other explanation in the Group House case. And then, in August, we had in a statement made by a spokesperson on behalf of the State Department in America on August the 8th, this statement. Following the use of a Novichok nerve agent in an attempt to assassinate UK citizen Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia Skripal, the United States on August the 6th, 2018, determined under the Chemical and Biological Weapons Control and Warfare Elimination Act of 1991, that the government of the Russian Federation has used chemical or biological weapons in violation of the international law or has used lethal chemical or biological weapons against its own nationals. Following a 15-day congressional notification period, these sanctions will take effect upon publication of a notice in the Federal Register expected on or around August 22nd, 2018. This is in August. There's been no evidence presented at that time. So, once again, we have an official story with various holes in, questions unanswered, official claims giving rise to more questions than answers, but the end result of it all is vindication in the public mind of Britain and America's claims about Russia and more justification for a conflict with Russia. This, of course, will roll on and on, and we'll hear more as the weeks and months pass, but the important thing to keep in mind is to question everything. RT's motto is question more, but that's not quite enough. We need to question everything. 
We also need to keep in mind the West's goal, which is a conflict with Russia, also involving China and Iran as part of a much bigger agenda to justify a world government and world army, which will be the unelected bureaucrats in the Hunger Games Society. See episode 4 if you've not heard me talk about the Hunger Games Society before. And the vicious, psychopathic, brutal police force, keeping order on behalf of the unelected bureaucrats working for the elite. In the end, it will be a robotic police force. I've covered that in episode 16. I featured a story on that subject. We need to keep our minds open and question everything because if we don't, then this agenda will happen. The next subject this week is Israel. This is in the Daily Mail. Sadiq Khan orders removal of offensive posters on London bus stops the brand the State of Israel a racist endeavour. Sadiq Khan today ordered the removal of offensive posters that condemn the State of Israel as a racist endeavour. The London mayor hit out at vandalism after the images started appearing on bus stops around the capital. The posters sprung up as Jewish groups warned that anti-Semitism was on the rise amid a major battle inside the Labour Party. Among the key issues in the dispute between the party's left-wingers, led by Jeremy Corbyn and moderates, has been whether it is acceptable to brand the State of Israel racist. Posters were spotted by a number of Twitter users who expressed disgust at the slogans. A spokesman for the Mayor of London said these offensive adverts are not authorised in our acts of vandalism which Transport for London and its advertising partner takes extremely seriously. They have instructed their contractors to remove any posters found on their network immediately. The latest episode comes as a new salvation poll published in the Jewish Chronicle reveals that 4 out of 10 Jews would consider leaving the UK if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister. The Labour leader last night failed to quell anger over vile abuse racking Labour despite bowing to demands to adopt the international definition of anti-Semitism. He caused new offence by trying to add a statement detailing protection for people who call Israel racist, a caveat rejected even by loyalists on the party's ruling NEC. The NEC is the National Executive Committee. Dave Rich, the head of policy at the Community Security Trust, said anti-Semitic incidents soared from a few dozen a month to over a hundred in spring 2016, just when the crisis erupted in Jeremy Corbyn's party. Speaking to the Women and Equality Select Committee today, Mr Rich said, Over the last two years, we have seen a much closer correlation between events in the Labour Party and our anti-Semitic incident statistics than any other single factor. Detailing anti-Semitism incidents reported to the CST, he said we recorded 129 incidents in June and 129 in July, but we had recorded 135 in May the month prior and 100 incidents in April. The big uptick in anti-Semitism incidents we recorded came in April and May. Now around that time came the whole issue about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party really hit the front pages with the suspensions of Naz Shah and Ken Livingstone. So we took that increase to be in response to those incidents that were happening here in the Labour Party. It may be the debate around Brexit and increasing hate crime after that debate kept the anti-Semitic incidents sustained at a higher level. And maybe they would have fallen away had it not been for that, but we had already seen an uptick before other hate crime. Over the last two years, we have seen a much closer correlation between events in the Labour Party and our anti-Semitic incident statistics than any other single factor. Mr Rich said that while he is not suggesting everyone committing the hate crimes are in the Labour Party, he warned the scandal is feeding a toxic atmosphere, and he urged Mr Corbyn to listen to the Jewish community and make the reforms needed to root out the abuse. He said this must be seen as more than mere technical changes but a cultural change as well. At least half a dozen Labour MPs are considering following Frank Field and quitting over the scandal. Meanwhile, a poll today found that 39% of the 710 British Jews who were quizzed for the survey said they would consider emigrating if Mr Corbyn gets the keys to number 10. 
Last month, Mark Lewis, an ex-Labour supporter and leading Jewish lawyer, and his partner Mandy Blumenthal revealed they are leaving Britain for Israel because of the scandal. They accused Mr Corbyn of moving the rot anti-Semites have crawled out from and said they have received a growing wave of hate and threats since he became Labour leader. He told Mail Online today, this was published on the 5th of September, waiting to see if Corbyn will become Prime Minister is already too late, the damage has already been done. He has moved the rock which was covering many very nasty creatures, he says. He goes on to say, even after the reluctant acceptance of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and its caveat that renders it meaningless, Corbyn made sure that his personal proposal was leaked so that his nasty gang knew that he was still with them. Of course, it is an individual decision, but for those who will listen, I say get out while you can. Well, I wonder if these posters would be criticised as vandalism and labelled unacceptable if they were promoting Israel. The hypocrisy here is just so blatant. This is moral outrage for hire, again, where you criticise when it suits you and then support or at least don't challenge something far worse when it suits you. We see this with Theresa May condemning terrorist attacks and then selling arms to Saudi Arabia and taking photos with the Saudi royals and Benjamin Netanyahu, leader of Israel. What kind of world do we live in where it has to be discussed formally whether it's acceptable to brand a racist state a racist state? The world we live in is so inverted from the way things should be. It's precisely because Israel is a racist state that it has to be discussed whether or not it's acceptable to brand them a racist state. If it wasn't a racist state, then none of this stuff would be happening. This discussion, the attacks on the Labour Party, and Jeremy Corbyn, all the attacks and cancelled events because of Zionist groups intimidating venues to stop people speaking who are criticising the Israeli regime's actions against the Palestinians and its revisionist Zionist network. None of that would be happening if Israel was not a racist endeavour because it would be obvious that it's not. So they wouldn't have to go to such lanes to stop criticism. One of the posters says Israel is a racist endeavour. That's absolutely correct. As I've just said, if someone calls Britain and America racist, and I can understand why someone would because of their constant targeting of countries in the Middle and Near East, not based on the reasons they say, but based on lies and propaganda to justify their own geopolitical agenda, I can understand why people might think that's racist and call Britain and America racist for that reason. But the point is, if someone does, Nothing happens. If someone calls France racist or Germany racist or Australia racist, nothing happens. So what is it about Israel? The answer to that is obvious. Israel is a racist endeavour. What they've done is a quick criticism of Israel, specifically criticism of the Israeli regime and its actions against the Palestinians, but also its apartheid nature, where land is bought up for only Jewish-only settlements with not a Palestinian in sight, which last time I checked is an example of racism, with criticism of Jewish people, which is a massive misnomer, because provisionist Zionism, which is the ideology behind that, which people criticise Israel for, is not about Jewish people, it's a political philosophy, and at its core, effectively, a secret society with its agents in key positions of power, not least in Britain and America, but also Germany, France and others, and a vehicle to coordinate a common policy, not least foreign policy of the West, and a secret agenda. It's a secret society, basically. But if you can convince people it's about Jewish people, then you can brand anyone racist and anti-Semitic for challenging and criticising Israel. It may have escaped some of those hitting back at perceived anti-Semitism. 
that Israel was brought into existence by revisionist, Zionist, terrorist groups like Ergun and Lehi in the first place. But that's anti-Semitic to say that, apparently. Well, unfortunately, it's also true. The constant erosion of Palestinian land goes back to a guy called Jav Jabotinsky, essentially the founding father of revisionist Zionism, who foresaw a greater Israel, which could only be achieved in his psychopathic mind by use of military force, and that's exactly what we're seeing today, with the present leader of Israel leading the charge. Netanyahu's father, Benjamin Netanyahu, was Jabotinsky's personal assistant. We're seeing unceasing genocide against the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, which is little more than a concentration camp, ironically, in exactly the same way that the Jews were treated during World War II. I talk in episode 10 about the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn and the real reason why they want to stop criticism of Israel. And the more people that criticise Israel, the harder it will be for them to silence people, even by enshrining criticism of Israel being a hate crime into law, which is where they want to go eventually. I talked about that in episode 16. But even being law, they can't arrest everyone and they can't arrest vast numbers of people. So people just need to keep talking. And then the real reason they don't want Israel and revisionist Zionism criticised will be revealed and when it is people are going to have a completely different perception of the world and then we can really make progress. This week is artificial intelligence. This is in Telegraph. Artificial intelligence is greater concern than climate change or terrorism, says new head of British Science Association. Artificial intelligence is a greater concern than antibiotic resistance, climate change or terrorism for the future of Britain, the incoming president of the British Science Association has warned. Well, well, I've talked in episodes 18 and 29 about why climate change is a massive hope to justify the enormous transformation of human society in the image of the elite's agenda and terrorism. The scale of it is overplayed, just like the scale of climate change. Anyway, the article goes on. Jamal Khalili, Professor of Physics and Public Engagement at the University of Surrey, said the unprecedented technological progress in AI was happening too fast without proper scrutiny or regulation. Professor Al-Khalili warned that the full threat to jobs and security had not been properly assessed and urged the government to urgently regulate. Speaking at a briefing in London ahead of the British Science Festival in Hull next week, this was published on the 6th of September, he said, until maybe a couple of years ago, had I been asked what is the most pressing and important conversation we should be having about our future, I might have said climate change or one of the other big challenges facing humanity such as terrorism, antimicrobial resistance, the threat of pandemics or world poverty. But today I am certain the most important conversation we should be having is about the future of AI. It will dominate what happens with all of these other issues for better or for worse. If Russian cyber hackers were able to meddle with the 2016 US elections, well, there's not been any evidence of that. The quote goes on. Then what is stopping cyber terrorists from hacking into any future AI-controlled power grids, transport systems, banks and military installations? Our government has a responsibility to protect society from potential threats and risks. Yes, but that's not what government's there for, ultimately. It's just a vehicle to introduce the elite's agenda, as I've explained before. The article goes on. Dubbed the fourth industrial revolution, artificial intelligence and robotics have improved exponentially in recent years with British companies like DeepMind leading the way in developing intricate neural networks previously thought impossible. In other words, brain networks. 
However, last week, the Bank of England warned that large swathes of Britain's workforce is now under threat of unemployment as robots and algorithms take over jobs. Even industries previously thought immune, such as creative writing, are now being replaced by artificially intelligent programs. And earlier this month, MNS announced it was replacing call center staff with AI. Professor Al Khalili added, many people are becoming increasingly nervous about what they see as unchecked progress in AI. There are valid concerns about the widespread implementation of AI leading to an increase in inequality. Robotics and autonomous systems are predicted to bring about job losses, primarily affecting workers in low-skilled roles, and there is still little research on how the future effects of automation might vary across the UK. We are now seeing an unprecedented level of interest, investment and technological progress in the field, which many people, including myself, feel is happening too fast. A survey released this week by KPMG found that 59% of Britons believe there should be more government regulations saying they were increasingly worried about data privacy and security. KPMG is also calling for a British standard of trust at Kitemark for AI and data security. Sue Daly, head of AI at Tech UK, which represents tech industries in Britain, warned that it was time for practical action to control artificial intelligence. It is, but that's not the idea. She says, AI is unprecedented potential to transform every aspect of our economy and society. That's what it's supposed to do. She goes on to say the UK is already a world leader in AI innovation in key sectors such as health and finance. But we must keep pace if the UK is to remain at the forefront in the development and application of AI technologies. How about not continuing with AI and only keeping it at the level of algorithms, thereby retaining human control over the AI? But of course, the agenda is to do the opposite. She goes on to say... This means acting now to create the right conditions to drive AI uptake, build the next generation of AI experts and put in place the mechanisms for the UK to be a world leader in the development of not only innovative but also responsible and ethical AI. The time for practical action is now. Well, I agree with that, but the idea is that we have an AI that is as far from ethical as it's possible to be for reasons too deep to go into in pay-per-view. On one level, this is all part of creating the Hunger Games society where artificial intelligence takes jobs previously done by humans who were then left unemployed and whose only option then is to do the jobs assigned to them based on what sector they live in. That's partly what this is about, but it's about something much bigger. We're seeing a gathering transformation of planet Earth from nature and biology to synthetics and biotechnology. The idea is to transform this planet into a complete inversion of the natural. This is where chemtrails come in, which I talk about in episode 11, because the key role of chemtrails is that they are releasing nanotechnology. And as a futurist, Google executive and co-founder of the Singularity University, a tech university in Silicon Valley, California, talks about this nanotechnology beyond the ability of the human eye to see is that nanobots will infuse all the matter around us with information, rocks, trees, everything will become these intelligent creatures. That's a quote from futurist Ray Kurzweil. And how are you going to do that unless the nanotechnology is coming from the sky? That's what chemtrails are all about, among other reasons. People absorb and breathe in the nanotechnology from chemtrails. Artificial intelligence is designed to run this new world, not humans, and artificial intelligence will control the nanotechnology. Smart dust and a definition of smart technology is that it can communicate with any other form of smart technology. So that's how this connection will be possible because you've got the smart grid in the cloud and artificial intelligence will run the smart grid. That's the plan. 
We're looking at the creation happening before our eyes of human 2.0 on Earth 2.0, where it's a synthetic world with synthetic humans living a life controlled by an artificial consciousness in a world controlled by an artificial consciousness. Nature and biology will cease to exist. This, as I've said many times before, is where transgender and fluid gender plays its role because the idea is an end. As Kurzweil talks about an oldest Huxley and Brave New World, and a guy I've talked about before called Dr. Richard Day, who was an executive of an organization called Planned Parenthood, which is a Rockefeller-supported organization. Rockefellers are one of these elite families. And it's about abortion and eugenics. In other words, population control. These are all examples of knowing the agenda and thus being able to predict the future. And you can either do that in a literary form, like Huxley and Orwell, or you can do it by just coming out and saying this is what's going to happen like Richard Day and Ray Kurzweil, although Kurzweil is selling transhumanism as the next stage in human evolution, making us superhuman. That's why they're telling us what they plan to do with transhumanism, because they're trying to sell it to us. When in truth, it's about making us subhuman, effectively a synthetic computer terminal. The body's a computer. I've explained that before in episode 17. So we effectively will be a synthetic computer terminal responding to data input provided by artificial intelligence. But going back to transgender and fluid gender, the idea is that you breed a population who don't procreate, don't give birth to humans, and thus humans have to be created synthetically. I talked in episode three about a decline in male sperm, and this is all connected to this agenda. Another quote from Ray Kurzweil, Homo sapien will be transformed into Homo evolutus, Biological processes will be run by technology. Living things will not be reproductive. The world will be run by engineered species and all processes will be patented, licensed and controlled. In terms of population control, here's another article, a short article from this week, connected to this. This is in The Independent. Bees are becoming addicted to the pesticides blamed for wiping them out, study finds. The more bees eat pesticides, the more they seem to want. This could be a problem considering these chemicals have been linked with the global decline of these vital pollinators. A new study has added to a body of evidence suggesting that bees not only enjoy consuming certain pesticides, they experience something comparable to addiction when they do. British researchers gave bumblebees in 10 colonies a choice of two different food sources. One that was just straight sugar solution and one containing neonicotinoid pesticides over the course of 10 days. Neonicotinoids are a highly controversial group of chemicals that have recently been the target of a near-total EU ban, but are nevertheless still the most widely used pesticides in the world. Once fed with food containing these pesticides, the bees kept coming back for more, in behaviour that looked remarkably like a human developing some kind of substance addiction. Given a choice, naive bees appear to avoid neonicotinoid-treated food. However, as individual bees increasingly experience the treated food, they develop a preference for it, said Dr Richard Gill, who led the study at Imperial College London. This is particularly intriguing given neonicotinoids' close chemical relationships with a very familiar addictive substance. Interestingly, neonicotinoids target nerve receptors in insects that are similar to receptors being targeted by nicotine in mammals, said Dr Gill. Our findings that bumblebees acquire a taste for neonicotinoids take certain symptoms of addictive behaviour, which is intriguing given the addictive properties of nicotine on humans, although more research is needed to determine this in bees. Over time, the bees visited the pesticide-laced food more and the other food less and had no trouble finding the one they wanted even when the sources were moved around. 
The tests they carried out were intended to give the insects a choice about where they wanted to feed just as they would have in the wild. We now need to conduct further studies to try and understand the mechanism behind why they acquire this preference at lead author Dr. Andres R.K. The work published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B builds on previous research that appeared to show bees preferring food with pesticides and over uncontaminated sources. Campaigners welcome the new findings as more evidence to support the hard-fought ban implemented in April. This study further backs the tougher ban on three neonicotinoid pesticides agreed earlier this year. Recent research also found that sulf Recent research also found that sulfoxiflor, touted as a replacement for neonicotinoids, may harm bees, said Friends of the Earth campaigner Sandra Bell. A paper published in mid-August revealed that sulfoxiflor, a chemical that has already been approved for use in several EU nations, has disruptive effects on bumblebee colonies. The solution is clear. Instead of replacing one harmful chemical with another, the government must use its post-Brexit farming policy to help farmers protect their crops without harming bees and other wildlife, said Miss Bell. Yes, but the idea is to get farmers off the land all part of the Hunger Games Society agenda, as I've explained before. Article goes on. However, Dr. Gill offered a more nuanced approach that did not involve an outright ban on neonicotinoids despite their harmful effects. Whilst neonicotinoids are controversial, if the effects of replacements on non-target insects are not understood, then I believe it is sensible that we take advantage of current knowledge and further studies to provide guidance for using neonicotinoids more responsibly rather than necessarily an outright ban, he said. It makes no sense to try to get rid of the bee population because they're so important to humans but when you realize the idea is depopulation then it makes perfect sense to many people the world doesn't make sense and one of the reasons for that is people are trying to make sense of it from the premise that it's supposed to make sense to them in the sense of that it's run for the people and if you try and understand the world from that perspective you're never going to do it because that's not the way it is. It's the opposite, as I've said before. In case anyone questions the motives for this technological agenda, which the depopulation agenda is connected into, I want to make the point that I'm not against technology. Technology allows us to do some wonderful things and is essential to daily life and jobs, etc. But the point is that this transhuman agenda is not about making us superhuman. It's not about helping us do everyday things more efficiently and easily. It's about making us subhuman. And I'll finish this with this quote, which encapsulates everything. Consider the minds that would make machines of men. The final subject this week is ADHD. This is in the Daily Mail. It's a short article, but a lot comes out of it. Experts claim more children with ADHD should be treated with drugs as it is revealed only 1 in 10 with the condition of prescribed medication. More children should be given drugs to treat ADHD, leading psychiatrist said last night. Just 1 in 10 British children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are prescribed drugs for the condition. A major study led by experts from Oxford University's King's College London in Australia found drugs were extremely effective in treating the condition. Professor David Coghill of the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne said methylphenidate, known as Ritalin, is better at treating ADHD than statins are at treating heart disease. Well, I talk about statins in episode 17. I'll talk about Ritalin in a minute. But only 0.5% of under-16s in the UK received the drugs, a tenth of the 5% thought to have ADHD. ADHD is the medical term for a group of behavioural problems which include inattentiveness, hyperactivity and impulsiveness. The doctors whose findings are 
published in the Lancet Psychiatry Journal, said common misconceptions about ADHD mean too few children are diagnosed with the condition or prescribed drugs. They said part of the problem is the idea that it is not a real condition and is in fact used to label children who are simply naughty. Well, maybe it is. Professor Coghill said, we now have very clear evidence that the brains of children with ADHD both structurally and functionally are very different. The NHS funded study examined data from 24,000 patients around the world, including 40,000 children, and concluded Ritalin remained the best medical option for children with ADHD, reducing symptoms by 78% compared to a placebo. By comparison, statins, one of the most widely taken drugs in Britain, cut the chance of heart disease by just 18%. Well, in episode 17, I feature an article talking about how statins may cause people to be 10 times more likely to develop motor neuron disease. And there's another article here just going on from that. This was published on August 31st. This is on CNN's website. 10% of US children diagnosed with ADHD study finds. The number of children diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder has reached more than 10%, a significant increase during the past 20 years, according to a study released Friday. And yet, around the same time, we've got this expert in the previous article saying not enough kids are. The rise was most pronounced in minority groups. The rate of diagnosis during that time period doubled in girls, although it was still much lower than in boys. But the researchers say they find no evidence confirming frequent complaints that the condition is overdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. The US has significantly more instances of ADHD than other developed countries, which researchers said has led some to think Americans are overdiagnosing children. Dr. Wei Bang, the lead author of the study, said in an interview that a review of studies around the world does not support that. I don't think overdiagnosis is the main issue, he said. Article goes on. Nonetheless, these doubts persist. Dr. Stephen Hinshaw, who co-authored a 2014 book called The ADHD Explosion, Myths, Medication, Money, and Today's Push for Performance, compared ADHD to depression. He said in an interview that neither condition is unequivocal biological markers, so it makes it hard to determine if a patient truly has the condition without lengthy psychological evaluations. Well, that's an interesting point, because am I saying that there are no kids with behaviour conditions? No, of course there are some. But this doctor... Stephen Hinshaw is right to say that ADHD doesn't necessarily manifest as a result of a genetic inheritance. So it has to be an environmental cause. So what is it? And I think if you take away the number of kids diagnosed with ADHD, those who are a disruptive influence in the classroom, as they might be called, and also those who consume large amounts of additives in food and drink and of course there will be a connection between the two groups as well then how many are left even assuming that ADHD is a real condition how many will be left that genuinely have ADHD regardless of those factors it'll be interesting to see what the figure is but Dr Stephen Hinshaw is correct it's not necessarily genetically inherited ADHD so what else is causing it Dr Hinshaw says it's probably not a true epidemic of ADHD. Dr. Stephen Hinshaw is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and a professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco. He goes on to say it might be an epidemic of diagnosing it. Exactly. In interpreting their results, however, the study's authors tied the higher numbers to better understanding of the condition by doctors and the public, new standards for diagnosis, and an increase in access to health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Because of the ACA, some low-income families have improved access to services and referrals, said Bao, an assistant professor of epidemiology at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. 
The study, published in JAMA Pediatrics, used data from the National Health Interview Survey, an annual federal survey of about 35,000 households. It found a steady increase in diagnoses among children from about 6% of children between 1997 and 1998 to more than 10% between 2015 and 2016. There's a question to ask here. We're seeing more and more kids with behavioural problems and conditions. Why? This didn't exist decades ago. So why does it exist now on the scale that it does? According to this article, a significant increase during the past 20 years. Has that spontaneously manifested? Or is something causing it that was not causing it decades ago? The article goes on. Advances in medical technology also may have contributed to the increase, according to the research. 20 years ago, preterm or low-weight babies had a harder time surviving. Those factors increased the risk of being diagnosed with ADHD. The study also suggests that fewer stigmas about mental health care in minority communities may also lead to more people receiving an ADHD diagnosis. In the late 1990s, 7.2% of non-Hispanic white children, 4.7% of non-Hispanic black children, 3.6% of Hispanic children were diagnosed with ADHD, according to the study. By 2016, it was 12% of white kids, 12.8% of blacks, and 6.1% of Hispanics. Over the past several decades, Hinshaw said there's been an expanded view of who can develop ADHD. It's no longer viewed as a disease that affects only white middle-class boys as eating disorders and no longer seen as affecting only white middle-class girls. Still, he cautioned against overdiagnosing ADHD in communities where behavioural issues could be the result of social or environmental factors such as overcrowded classrooms. Exactly what I'm saying. The study found rates of ADHD among girls rose from 3 to more than 6% over the study period. It said that was partly a result of a change in how the condition is classified. For years, ADHD pertained to children who were hyperactive, but in recent years, the American Psychiatric Association added to its guide to mental health conditions that diagnosis should also include some children who are inattentive. Bao said, widening the definition so you can encompass more kids. The article goes on. That raised the number of girls, he explained, because it seems they're more likely to be in that second subtype. If we compare these two, you can easily imagine people will easily recognise hyperactivity, he said. Exactly. How can the official medical psychological definition be believed when it keeps getting wider all the time? So that would indicate that nobody really knows what it is at any point because it keeps changing. And more and more and more types of behaviour are poured into it. The article goes on. If we compare these two, you can easily imagine people will easily recognise hyperactivity, he said. And that rang true for Ruth Hay, a 25-year-old student and cook from New York who now lives in Jerusalem. She was diagnosed with what was then called ADD, somewhere between second and third grade. Hay said her hyperactive tendencies aren't as loud as some people's. She was less likely to bounce around the room than she is to bounce in a chair, she said. Yet, despite her early diagnosis, Hay said, no one ever told her about other symptoms. For example, she said, she suffers from executive dysfunction, which leaves her feeling unable to accomplish tasks, no matter how much she wanted to or tried. I grew up being called lazy in periods of time when I wasn't, Hay said. If you look at a list of all the various ADHD symptoms, I have all of them to one degree or another. But the only ones ever discussed with me, you might be less focused and more fidgety. I don't know how my brain would be if I didn't have the condition she added. I don't know if I'd still be me, but all it has been for me is a disability. This is classic mainstream media. They take a statement from a so-called expert without question and print it as news and journalism with no research of their own behind it, just what the expert says. 
And in many cases, these experts that were told are experts are just repeating what they've been told. There's two very common causes of the symptoms of ADHD and associated conditions. One is being bored rigid at school with the largely irrelevant information being given to kids to learn five days a week. If kids were given something interesting to do, you might find they're actually more engaged. I've talked about the education system before in episodes 5 and 18. It's all part of filling kids' brains with left brain information, the left side of the brain. The brain is a muscle. The more you stimulate it and how you stimulate it dictates how it works. Therefore, if you only fill the brain with left brain information, you're going to turn out generations of kids who can't perceive in the way the right brain can, which is fundamental to seeing and understanding what's going on and understanding especially connections which of course is one of the reasons I do pay-per-view context and connections the right brain sees that another aspect of the education system while I'm talking about it is that it teaches kids what to think instead of how to think instead of teaching them to question what they're told as I said earlier question everything and instilling a fascination in learning. People get bored in school being taught irrelevant information and being given hard to work out work to do. And so when they leave school, many of them associate learning with being bored, so they don't want to learn. And this has implications in terms of wanting to know about what's going on in the world. Most people don't want to because either they think it's too hard and or that's more learning and learning is boring. This is the perception school implants as well as the perception of fearing the authority figure and always doing what authority wants and the authority and the official narrative knows best and is always right these are all the perceptions of the education system is there purposely to instill into kids so they hold those perceptions for the rest of their lives another cause of what's called adhd is artificial sweeteners and additives in food and drink or what passes for food and drink anyway Additives like aspartame, an artificial sweetener, others as well, but aspartame is the worst one I've come across. Such additives are excitotoxins or neurotoxins, in other words, brain toxins, neuro means brain. They excite brain cells and over a period of time stop the brain working to full capacity. They basically burn out the brain cell. And when you look at the traits of too much aspartame, for example, and you look at the traits of ADHD, there's an obvious similarity because one is causing the other. The short attention spans, the excitedness, the lack of motivation to stick at a task for any length of time, they're all traits of aspartame. And what human society, being human society does, is try to find a solution to the problem rather than identifying and removing the cause of the problem. Because if you identify and remove the cause, then the effect must by definition cease to exist. How can it do anything else? And we have a world full of solutions. You can find a solution to the problem, but at the same time as finding a solution, the cause can still exist, which means the effect can reoccur. So in this case, we've got kids being prescribed drugs, which can actually make them worse, especially Ritalin. That's the worst one I've come across but others as well, when it's far more beneficial to actually address the cause, because if you identify the cause and the effect must by definition needs to exist. That's what a sane, intelligent society run for the benefit of the people would do. But because we don't have a sane, intelligent society run for the benefit of the people, kids just get prescribed drugs. Childhood and being a kid are being turned into a condition and it's being done systematically to 
provide an excuse to drug kids because they're going to be the adults of tomorrow when this agenda is planned to be in full swing. I mean, we're already in the world of the agenda. It's just a question of extent. But the other benefit to mass drugging kids is that it gets them used to the idea of being drugged for behavior, not even health problems, behavior. And just like with school, get kids used to the idea of something and I'll take it with them into their adult years and through life. That's one reason why we've got more and more of school taken over from parents to get kids used to that idea, get kids used to the idea of the state and authority being the parent. And again, this story is another example when you look at it in its wider context of what I keep saying, that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.